You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Vera Bittner, President of the National Lipid Association. I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Alan Brown and presented by the National Lipid Association. Cardiologists have often been very proud of the reduction in cardiovascular disease death that we've achieved over the past 20 years. There's certainly concern, however, with the epidemic of obesity and diabetes that the future for cardiovascular disease may not be so rosy. Today we're live from the National Lipid Association Conference in Chicago, Illinois, and we're going to discuss the future of cardiovascular disease with Dr. Tom Allison, Ph.D., He's a consultant in cardiovascular diseases and internal medicine at Mayo Clinic Rochester and has special expertise in preventative cardiology, exercise testing, and cardiac rehab. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure, Alan. So I know you do a lot of traveling. You've traveled to South America and multiple other places and looked at cardiovascular disease trends. And I know you have some insights on the trends in the United States. I wonder if you could fill us in on what you think the future of heart disease is. I'll do that. And as you mentioned, because I've been speaking a lot in developing countries where the epidemic is just sort of coming into blossom, it gives me a chance to look at our own epidemic. And for the last 50 years, cardiovascular disease rates in the U.S. have been going steadily down. Now, we have to qualify that. When we talk about cardiovascular disease rates, we're talking about death from cardiovascular disease, and these are age-adjusted. So people are still dying, getting cardiovascular disease, and they're still dying from it. They're just 20 or 30 years older than what they were in the 1960s. So it's still around, but when we calculate these age-adjusted rates, it's been going down, 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 dropped really about 50% since peak in the 1960s. So as you know, this is something in cardiology that we're very proud of, and we feel like we've had some great successes. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on why you think we've been able to reduce these rates and then what you think the future holds. Right. We can kind of divide that into two periods. In the first period, say from 1960, 1970 to about 1985, it was largely the Surgeon General's report on smoking. So smoking rates in the U.S. declined from 59% down to about 20% where they're sort of stuck now. And the smoking rates for men in particular came from 70-plus percent down to about 20%. And so that was the big change that influenced those rates. Now, since 1985, it's been 9-11, defibrillators, stents, beta blockers, the medical team really has to take the lion's share of credit for what's been happening in the last, say, 20 years, 25 years in terms of heart disease. We're not having fewer heart attacks. We're just saving more of those people. And of course, those people are older when they have their heart attack because they didn't smoke. They don't have that destabilizing influence of the smoking. So with that said, in the era of health care reform, when we're talking about trying to provide insurance for everybody, there's obviously some disturbing trends, which is the obesity epidemic and the increasing incidence of diabetes. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how that might affect the next couple of decades. That's a very interesting point. Now, my colleagues at Mayo, Dr. Roger and her team, did an interesting study where they looked at people who died of unnatural causes, basically motor vehicle accidents was the bulk of it, and they did autopsies, or these were people that had autopsies done, and 
from the early 1980s when the study started until about 1993, the prevalence of disease in the arteries of these people who didn't know they had the disease was decreasing. But after 1993, guess what? It's increasing. And so obesity and diabetes in its intermediate insulin resistance appear to be increasing the amount of coronary disease in the population. But with any chronic disease, there's a 20 to 25 year lag time between the introduction or change in a risk factor and a reduction in the death rate. With heart disease, you sort of got to get the disease and then it's got to progress, and then you die from it. So when the diabetes rates go up, it takes 20 to 25 years for the heart disease rates now to go up with it. So it looks like we're uh, due for a new wave. This curve, it's been going down, down, down. It's going to level off and, and start to come back up. It's certainly scary when you think that we have an enlarging population, a baby boomers reaching heart disease age in the next 10, 15 years, declining a number of healthcare professionals which makes me think that we likely are going to have to focus more on lifestyle modification, something that really there is no big, huge plan for. So I wonder if you could comment on whether you think this epidemic of diabetes is going to require much more medical management or some sort of public approach to lifestyle modification. Well, there have been a lot of interesting trials lately, and, and I think the bottom line is from Accord and Advance, we're not really sure about the best way to manage diabetes in terms of preventing cardiovascular outcomes. We know how to prevent retinopathy and nephropathy, but preventing heart attacks and stroke, I'm not sure we really know how to do that well other than preventing diabetes in the first place. Now, of course, we had a, a recent trial, the Berry 2 d trial, which looked at medical treatment versus stenting or bypass surgery. And particularly in that stenting group, you know, the stents really didn't help these people. They were just as well or better off being managed medically. Because the coronary disease that you get in diabetes is different than the coronary disease that you get when you have high cholesterol and smoke. The latter disease is more focal, is much more amenable to a physical manipulation like putting a stent in. And stents have been wonderful in reducing angin in the population and in an acute sense, when the patient's having a heart attack, reducing death and, and morbidity. But where do you stent an artery that's diseased all the way up and down and is narrowed and diffusely diseased in the distal portion? I don't think our current therapies are really designed for the new epidemic that's coming down the pike. Yeah, I think the Barry 2D was fascinating in many ways. The bypass surgery patients obviously did better initially, but after about five years, medical therapy, stent, and bypass were all about the same. That's right. And it was also impressive. It didn't matter whether you treated with oral agents or insulin. It didn't seem to have any effect on the outcome. Well, you know, in some ways, the best place maybe to treat this disease is like in the cardiac rehab program or the health club. You know, exercise, weight loss, control of the blood sugar. This may be the most critical factor. And again, more important than the drugs we use and clearly more important than the kind of the mechanical things that we can do in the artery. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, your host. Our guest today is Dr. Tom Allison from Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, to talk to us about the future of heart disease. 
Okay, so let's get back to something that's dear to your heart, I know, which is obviously the best approach would be to prevent the diabetes in the first place. And do you have any thoughts about a strategy considering the uh, worsening obesity worldwide? It's not just happening here in the United States. There are strategies, and there have been good studies, the DPP study, the Finnish Diabetes Prevention Program, that show that an intense behavioral intervention reducing carbohydrate intake in the diet, reducing calories, increasing physical activity levels, these prevent diabetes. I mean, it's very clear. The question is, is there anything we could do on a societal level? Is there a fluoride that we could put in the water system that would do to diabetes what fluoride did to tooth decay? I mean, virtually eliminating it. How can we restructure the society so that people start walking to work again and have to do more physical activity. That's a very difficult question. I mean, we know how to do it. If you come to me and say, I want to get rid of my diabetes or prevent my diabetes, I can give you a program, and if you go to the health club and carry it out, it will work for you. But how to motivate the millions of people, particularly this next generation, the diabetic adolescents, the obese adolescents, that's a real challenge that I don't think we've figured out yet. I mean, do you have the answer to that? No, I wish I did. I think uh, the problem with willpower is it has a half-life of two weeks and it's soluble in alcohol. So yeah. <laughs> as far as changing behavior, you need daily reminders. My thought would be the workplace may be the place to do it, especially since employers are so invested in the cost of health care. So if you could develop a series <clears throat> excuse me, of incentives so that when you go to work, you are motivated to spend 45 minutes exercising during your lunch break so that the food that's available is all healthy, that there's a Weight Watchers sort of a program on site. Those are the types of things that might help you be healthier on a daily basis. But you need to be reminded daily, which is why my suspicion is the workplace may be the way. The workplace is very good because Americans value work so much. What's a study about alcoholism that a man will let his marriage and family fall apart and not treat his alcoholism, but if his employer says you're going to lose your job, then all of a sudden he's off to therapy. So the other place is school. Now, you and I remember when we were in school, we had gym every day. We had an hour of gym every day and a double period once a week. And I walked back and forth to school and walked home for lunch. And so our physical activity levels were incredibly higher. And we didn't have pizza in the school cafeteria. Mom packed the lunch and brought it. Now, that brings up all sorts of issues. But I think that we hit adults at the workplace. But I think we've got to turn back the clock in the schools. You know, no recess, no gym. We're just not teaching kids the right things and giving the opportunity to practice them. I think some of it is the parents' fault also, and I take credit for that as a parent. Uh, We blame the Xbox on our kids not exercising, but when I was 10 years old, I remember my parents letting me ride my bike across town after my homework was done in the evening to go visit my friends. And now we're so fearful that if our children are out of our sight that they may get abducted. It's a little bit of a different world, so we don't let the kids do as much outside. I mean, there's an epidemic of diabetes in cats now because we keep our cats inside and we feed them carbohydrate-based foods rather than fish. So, you know, maybe there's a parallel there, too. But changing the activity habits and the diet of the population is what needs to be done, and that's a tough thing to do 
and requires. It's not something a physician in his office is going to be able to do for more than a few people a day, and changing these on a societal level is going to be difficult. Uh, else, how are we going to pay for this epidemic? Well, thank you very much, Tom. It's eye-opening to know that the next generation, our children, may be the first to have a shorter life expectancy than their parents in the history of mankind. So I think there's definitely going to be a move towards more global strategies, and I appreciate your insights. And we may be the first generation that's not allowed to retire because there's so much disease and so many people to take care of and fewer people going into the medical profession. So you and I may be having this talk again at, when we're in our 90s because of this epidemic. Well, I put my 90th birthday on the calendar for our next interview. Excellent. I'm there. Thank you very okay. much, Tom. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.